Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Drive Into the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, your host, and uh, back after a week's hiatus uh, without getting too much into the reasons. Uh, it was for some, uh, excuse me, missed recording because of some uh, real-life happenings. Uh, it wasn't due to the absolute and utter miserable mess that this season has turned into, uh, but we're going to be talking about that today. So just one small thing I want to get into, and I don't spend too much time on Twitter. Uh, social media has just never been my thing. I, I've on and off thought about just having more of a presence on Twitter, but for some reason, and, and maybe I will, uh, but for some reason, social media just kind of uh, sets me on edge a little bit. Uh, it's nothing against anybody on there, but a phenomenon I have become aware of, and but we've seen this in recent seasons as well, and this is just something that happens on the internet, and there are bad apples on on social media. Uh, you know, that's, that's just how it is, and the vast majority of people will not do this, but I just want to uh, send out, I suppose, a few words of support to, to the Pistons beat writers. Uh, often during times when the team is really struggling, uh, the you know the beat writers, uh, people who write about the team, can become very whatever. They can become kind of targets of abuse for people who are for some people. Again, these are these are just a group of bad apples uh, who are feeling agitated about the, the the course of the season, and I suspect just want perhaps these writers to just go full force and just completely and absolutely attack and castigate the team, which is obviously not going to happen. It's just not something that the writers for a team are going to do, uh, nor should they. Uh, whatever the case, I think that that for, for perhaps for all of us, uh, it, the kind of gulf created by the internet, the fact that we're interacting with somebody through a computer screen can make it easy to forget that these are real people and that uh, being attacked constantly, even by people you don't know, uh, is going to be a difficult experience. So again, I just wanted to put out a just a brief word of support for them. Uh, and what I have no doubt has become a pretty difficult season for them, both in terms of how the season has gone uh, and also terms of what uh, some of the fan reaction to them has been all right so now uh, on to the meat of the episode uh, i have decided it's actually been a while since i did this on a mailbag episode so i uh, put out a call for questions uh, this was to uh, the pistons discord community uh, check it out if you haven't just search for detroit pistons discord on google and it'll be the first thing that comes up so i want to thank everybody who helped me out by submitting questions uh, just the first a couple of general questions i want to get to that uh, that i've seen all over the place uh, number one is, do we fire Dwayne Casey this season? And uh, everybody who listens to the show knows that I do not have a high opinion of Dwayne Casey as an on-court coach. I think he is a very, very below average on-court coach. I think that, that that has been the case for a long time. I think he got away with it in Toronto because, uh, you know, from, you know, for the most part, like during his last you know, four or five seasons there, uh, he had Lowry and DeRozan just who were basically elite, give you the ball and score guys. And and he really relied upon that. And when it didn't work in the playoffs, he pretty much fell apart. And I, I think, I mean, I remember watching game four of that first round upset sweep uh, in 2015, where the Wizards beat the Raptors and just watching game four, just them absolutely plaster the Raptors and thinking, man, you know, Dwayne Casey was a good floor raiser for this team, uh, but they got to get rid of him if they want to win. In the events, he, he limped on for another three seasons before he got fired and, and brought on by the Pistons. Uh, I think it bears remembering to win games. This was when we still had this uh, uh, Griffin, Drummond, Jackson trio uh, with a complete and utter mess of a roster aside from that. And and they brought in Dwayne Casey to win games. Dwayne Casey, who is not a coach who's going to win games in today's NBA. I think that as I think that not only does does he have his inherent flaws, which I, I believe are that he's very unimaginative. He's a very below average offensive coach, and he's he's very bad at adapting to circumstances. And these are all things that were ruinous flaws in the playoffs. And we even saw it a little bit for the Pistons and in the you know the 
the sweep at the hands of the Bucks, and the Pistons were going to lose that series anyway, badly, probably, even if Griffin had been playing all four games. But you see Dwayne Casey trot out in game one, a lineup of Reggie Jackson, Wayne Ellington, Bruce Brown, Thon Maker, and Andre Drummond. That is three non-shooters. Uh, a lineup, I suppose, that maybe he believed would be able to compete on off on defense, excuse me, uh, but had no hope of, well, no, they weren't going to compete on defense with the Bucks in any case, but they had also had absolutely no hope of being a solid offensive line. I mean, they were going to fall behind on offense no matter what. You have like Luke Kennard, for example, who's your best pure shooter. Why don't you start him? It took Dwayne Casey until game two to, to, to make some very simple decisions in terms of the lineup. And you like... Sure, that, that was some adaptation, but you like go into game one. You can't just throw a playoff game because you want to make bad decisions in game one. Whatever. I'm getting sidetracked. So, uh, yeah, Dwayne Casey, I think very below average coach on the off. Uh, excuse me, on um, in terms of in-game operations, uh, particularly on offense. I think he makes bad decisions. I think his rotations are suspect. I think he doesn't adapt. I, I think his offense is just painful to watch. He's terrible in the late game. And... Uh, would I fire, you know, if I were in charge of, if, if I were Troy Weaver, despite all that I have said, uh, would I fire Dwayne Casey? And despite all that I have said about Dwayne Casey throughout his entire tenure as coach, would I fire Dwayne Casey midseason where we are right now? My answer is no. And here, here's my reason. So say what you will about Dwayne Casey. Uh, well, I've certainly said plenty uh, about Dwayne Casey as an on-court coach. Uh, he does have some strengths. Uh, he's he's a decent developmental coach, not not in all situations. Like for example, I have some doubts as far as how he's handling Ivy this season. But I know I just said decent, but I'll call him a solid defense, a solid developmental coach rather, given his track record. And he also runs a good locker room. He has managed to his players like him. He has managed to keep the locker room together. I mean, keep uh, keep problems from erupting at all. We have not heard a single thing about discontent or or difficulties in the Pistons locker room over the last. Uh, two and a half seasons. The worst that we've seen was Hamadou Diallo getting a little bit pissed off at him uh, in the early stages of last season. And, uh, you know, but aside from that, it, it, it's been two and a half seasons of a grinding rebuild. And we, we haven't heard anything. He seems to run a very good locker room uh, and things stay fine despite a lot of losing, like a lot, a lot of losing. And uh, as far as would things improve this season, if you were to replace Casey with a considerably better on-court coach, um, I would say not substantively, you know, not enough given uh, well given two circumstances really given number one the, the talent that's on the team right now the roster has some issues uh, needless to say I mean this is a roster that can't play defense and does not have enough offensive firepower uh, so uh, do I think that I mean maybe the Pistons squeeze out a few more wins uh, in close games but uh, you know the season let's put it this way like the Pistons are not going to win substantively more games this season but might it might they be a little bit more enjoyable to watch you know that's entirely possible if you replace Casey with with a pretty good coach but but are they going to win a, a more, you know, an, an amount more games that is going to be meaningful? No. And this brings me to point number two, which is that the season is lost. I mean, it is irretrievably lost. I know that's that some people were hoping that the Pistons would make the plan. Uh, I thought that probably, I think that my preseason projection, but you know, this was pre-K getting injured, of course, was in the low 30s for wins. I did not think the Pistons, well, this is just my opinion, was was that the Pistons were not going to make the plan. I did not expect the the season to go the way that it uh, the way that it has, but. Whatever the case, the season is lost. You know, for for those who may have been hoping that the Pistons were going to make the plans, that is no longer a possibility, realistically speaking, with the roster that the Pistons have. And at this point, uh, it is better for the Pistons to lose games and, and and to maintain those high draft odds. 
Uh, I was hoping that this was not going to be another season in which down the stretch I was going to have to be watching, you know, with uh, just anxiety, hoping that the Pistons were going to manage to lose games to get the best possible draft odds as they could. But that's that's going to be what it's that, that's how it's going to be for me. <laughs> and I think it's going to be the same thing as it was the last three seasons now where you're just hoping that the Pistons lose so they get the best odds to hopefully get a game changer in the draft. So and basically, you'd just be disrupting things for no reason at all. And the rest of the season may well be unpleasant. I'd keep some keep the continuity. And I don't think Casey, again, I'm, I'm not a fan of how he's handling Ivy. I don't think he's doing harm for development. And there's just I think there's just no reason. I mean, you'd be causing disruption for no gain. And I'll say this about Casey, and this is an absolutely and utterly backhanded compliment. Uh, he has actually been a positive for the tank, uh, you know, the last two seasons, in that he loses a lot of close games. He helps, excuse me, I'll put it this way. He helps the Pistons lose a lot of close games unintentionally through the fact that he is a dreadful late game coach. He is horrible in late game situations. So I would say, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that uh, I, I would be shocked, like absolutely shocked, if Casey were placed before the end of the season. Uh, so, that, you know, I would say no reason to replace him. And I would say in any case, uh, he's, he's very, 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 very like overwhelmingly likely to be the coach until the end of the season. But I think absolutely it is time for the Pistons to move on in the offseason. Casey seems like a good dude. And I hope that as rumored, he transitions to some sort of front office role to which he is suited. Question number two, and this is going to be a much, much, much shorter answer, is has Troy Weaver really screwed things up, like based on the way that this season has gone? And uh, I'll say two things about that. Number one, uh, we don't know how this season would have gone with Cade on the roster because losing him really, really undercut the offense. Uh, you know, the Pistons probably would have still been a disaster on the defensive end. You kind of lose Cade's leadership as well, though, and that's definitely not helpful. Uh, number two is, is something I mentioned in a previous episode, which is that this Pistons team, I mean, they've made a very, very good start on the rebuild in terms of having Cade, in terms of having Ivy, uh, you know, Jalen Duran. You know, a couple of solid role players in, in Sadiq Bay and, and Isaiah Stewart. You know, Isaiah Stewart, of course, also one of those ultimate character guys who is just, you know, great to have on the team and behind the scenes. We've seen some improvement, Killian Hayes. Hopefully that persists. Uh, whatever the case, the Pistons, just in terms of Cade and hopefully Ivy, have made a great start on the rebuild, but the team in, in terms of the roster this season remains just dreadfully incomplete. And that's just sometimes something that happens with the rebuild. And the next couple of years, I think, well, I'd say the next three years, but. We can even go with just two seasons from now would be the real referendum on, on, on how Weaver has done. And of course, two seasons from now, I mean, that'll be his fifth season. And if, if the Pistons aren't showing you know tangible results at that point, then either something has gone drastically wrong or he hasn't, or you know, drastically wrong, you know, whatever that is with developments or otherwise, or, or Weaver just hasn't taken the necessary steps. It is possible in the NBA to do everything right and not have things go right, but you know, that's, that's less the case, much less often the case than not. So I think those would be the true referendum, but I, I don't think it's right to judge Troy Weaver on the basis of this season's roster, you know, especially with his, I think we can all agree would unequivocally be his best player, uh, having only played a very small number of games and, and having played those games injured. Is the roster a mess? Yes. At the same time, this is still a rebuilding season. I think the Pistons, you know, would have been just fine if, if the, the roster, you know, the Weaver and, and everybody else in the front office would have been just fine if the roster that they had built this season went out and was successful. But I don't think, my guess would be that they didn't count those chances particularly high. And did Weaver set this team up to win this season? No, um, but oh, there's no way he realistically could have done so even if he wanted to. 
and it really wouldn't have made sense, in my opinion, to go all in on winning this season. This is this is a team where you want to develop. Uh, I mean, this this season's the the bellwether for this season in terms of success. In my opinion was always going to be development. Still very much a rebuilding season, and uh, it's definitely not going to hurt the Pistons to get more talent, like top talent, in in what's shaping up to be a very strong draft. Though it certainly does hurt to watch a third season in which there are a lot of games being lost, and I think. In the last episode, uh, Jack Kelly and I talked about this, that it's, you know, it's tiring. <laughs> it's tiring to be in season three of a rebuild and, and still be watching it. You know, it, it's tough to watch through a protracted rebuild a, a, as a fan. And of course, this season has been made particularly tough by the fact that the player that we were most excited about, well, like most of us were most excited about, whatever, I don't need to make that qualification. One of the most exciting players in the team, that was Kate Cunningham, who is, you know, the prospect of franchise player. Only played a very short time and then just out for the rest of the season. And that, that was one major thing to be excited about that is gone. And, and just the team has struggled a lot. Uh, I, I don't think, I would say that Rockets fans have it worse. Uh, of course, that's just comparing really bad and worse. Whatever the case, it sucks the way that the season is gone. And uh, to the real, again, the real referendum on Weaver's, uh, on, on the job that he has done as general manager will be at this, you know next season, but very much the season after that. But yeah, this season has been miserable, like very, very miserable. Um, but I don't think that should necessarily be conflated with, you know, with Weaver has done a bad job. You know, we'll see you later on, uh, later on, not this season, later on in his tenure. All right. So moving on to the questions I've received and fun fact, I'm actually going to be adding to this episode uh, throughout the day. I put out the call for questions this morning. Uh, well, it currently is the morning still where I am. Uh, so uh, question number one, and uh, I know this was asked by somebody uh, because uh, he knows how I feel about Stan Van Gundy. So uh, the question, what would have happened if we removed Sam Van Gundy from the front office but kept him on as coach? Uh, the first part of that answer is that my head would have exploded. Uh, the second part of that answer is that things, I think, well, we would have had Stan Van Gundy coaching the the, the Drummond Griffin Jackson trio with a complete mess of a roster, and uh, we all saw how that had gone the season before. I mean, Stan Van Gundy. You can say what you. Everybody has their own opinion as far as how that trade came about. You know, was it forced upon Stan Van Gundy by Tom Gores? Was did, did Van Gundy make the Griffin? I'm, I'm talking about the the Griffin trade. Did he make it because he was desperate to save his job? I think that the answer was the latter. Um, I think he absolutely had a license from Tom Gores, who at that point just didn't. I think he learned the next season that he should stop meddling. Um, but it, but at that point, was still very, very meddlesome, uh, had some very wrong ideas about, you know, how to win in the NBA, such as, you know, just, you know, build a winning culture, start winning, and you'll continue winning and getting better. I mean, with no reference at all to how much talent you actually have on the team, which is uh, apparently, you know, what has been said is the reason that, is that that's the reason that he did not allow the Pistons to rebuild until the 2019, until uh, 2020, really, and close to nine years after he had bought the team, and it's a completely broken way of thinking about it. I mean, you need a, you need talent to win in the NBA. I mean, talent is, you know, talent wins championships. Obviously, you need to have the team culture as well, but you're not going to put a bunch of guys together who who don't have enough talent to win a championship and say, okay, just get to the first round, and you know, we can build this culture that will enable us to get even better, even though we don't have the talent. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I also think that, you know, he conflated uh, elite talent with winning or, or maybe with ticket sales, uh, whatever the case. Uh, so I think that Van Gundy had the license to make that choice. But I also think that he was fully on board in what was an, a horrible trade, just in a long shot effort to save his job. 
I mean, this this is one of the reasons why you don't want to have. I mean, the coach GM thing is over. Nobody else. It, there is it is no longer a thing in the NBA. There there are no longer any guys who are both general manager and coach, unless you count Popovich. And I'm not sure how how long he's been involved, how much he has been involved in recent years. I don't know. I, I just don't know enough about that. I also know that he's Greg Popovich, um, and and therefore is is in my opinion the best you know the best NBA coach of all time, and he's an exception in all things. So whatever the case is with him. Uh, in any case, I mean, when you have a guy who is both coach and GM, uh, you you give him a lot more power to do things to prevent Brennan from being fired. I mean, or actually, I don't know if that's a good way of putting it. Let me put it differently. Uh, if you get fired, you're probably getting fired from both roles. And I know that's that's funny to say in the context of this question. So, you know, so GM might do things to keep coach from getting fired because, you know, as the coach gets fired, then GM's getting fired also. In any event, uh, Van Gundy made it very, very clear in his coaching for the remainder of that season that uh, he had absolutely no idea how to play at Griffin and Drummond together. His adaptation when he brought Griffin in was, oh, hey, Andre, uh, I'm going to start using you as a post-up scorer again, even though I started you know, trying to do this in uh, my first season as your coach. And since then, you've been quite possibly the worst uh, post-up big man in the entire league. Well, that's not quite possibly. That's actually the case in terms of guys who are, who are getting the volume opportunities from the post. Like, you know, for those who weren't watching back then, I mean, Drummond's who he basically had his one post move. He would, you know, back down a guy and then throw up a hook. I mean, he was comically inefficient from the post, like to the point where it was actually a gift to the other team that Van Gundy was posting him up. And it's like in Drummond's rookie season, it's like not rookie season, his first season under Van Gundy, which I believe was his third season in the league. Yeah, this was 2014, 2015. It's like, okay, give it a shot. And in the season after that, it's like, okay, I mean, maybe keep at it. The season after that, it was like, please stop. And then in the, in the fourth, Van Gundy's fourth season, he stopped using Drummond in the post altogether at the beginning of the season. He used him as kind of a secondary playmaker at the, at the, um, at the top of the paint instead. Uh, Drummond was okay at that. And, uh, you know, just to make it clear, I mean, Drummond, we know this was a player who demanded his touches and he kind of like obliviously said at the beginning of that season, oh, I'm fine, you know, not you know, being used in the post if, you know, so long as I still have the ball in my hands a lot. Uh, whatever the case, uh, yeah. So I mean, the Pistons opened that season, and that's still the best season that they, best opening to a season that they have had since like 2007, 2008. They went 14 and six. They were playing against some really good teams. Uh, they beat the. I mean, that was that was a fun start to the season, and that was with the the starting lineup of Jackson, Bradley, Stanley Johnson, Tobias Harris, and Drummond, and like they beat the the Clippers, who had been undefeated. Um, I mean, they're just six and zero. Uh, they beat the the Durant Warriors the next night. Uh, they beat the uh, little later on. Well, this was about a month, uh, more than a month later. The Celtics, who were one of the best teams in the league, whatever the case, it was a good start with a new offense. And by all accounts, that new offense was actually formulated by the assistants and uh, based on a lot of suggestions as far as Drummond went, made by Jeff Van Gundy, so Stan's brother. And when the Pistons made that trade for for Griffin. Van Gundy's solution was to say, okay, well, Andre, I'm going to start posting you up again. And, and that, needless to say, was a terrible idea. Uh, Drummond should have been taking zero post-ups per game. And these two are always going to be an awkward duo and uh, an outdated duo. And and Drummond and, yeah, and Van Gundy just had, had absolutely no idea what to do. Uh, and, I mean, we take the fact that the team is arguably, I mean, the roster was arguably even more of a mess the next season. The, the roster that the Pistons fielded in 2018-2019 was completely and utterly broken, a, a mishmash of, of mismatched parts that really, in my opinion, had no hope from the beginning. It really needed an innovator in order to 
you know, have any hope of achieving, you know, even a small degree of meaningful success. Instead, the Pistons got uh, Dwayne Casey. And, uh, you know, I was always also asked this uh, today and uh, outside of the context of you know, mailbag questions. But, you know, would I prefer Casey or Van Gundy? I would say Casey with not even the slightest bit of hesitation. I think that he shares a lot of Van Gundy's shortcomings, but to a lesser degree. I also think that he has positive qualities as a coach that Van Gundy absolutely and completely lacks, such as, you know, what I mentioned before, like a, a, a coach who is who is pretty good with development, you know, who is good with young players, whose players like him. None of these things are true of Stan Van Gundy, like none of them. <laughs> Just one of the reasons, I mean, he was such an, an absolutely flabbergasting choice to coach that young Pelicans team. And, you know, credit to Stan in that, in that capacity. It's not fun to be fired, I'm sure, but he got paid. I don't remember if it was four or five years worth of salary to coach for one year. Uh, but, you know, jokes aside, he was a coach who was who I believe had demonstrated in his last two years with the Pistons. I mean, his first two years with the Pistons, he was more just very mediocre. But as as the league really evolved from 2015 onward, I think he, he was, you know, transitions from mediocre to absolutely terrible. And I think that's the evolution. I think he basically proved in his last two seasons, in which, in my opinion, he well, he was one of the worst coaches I've ever seen in any sport in those last two seasons. And, you know, aside from, you know, the Pistons had that 14 and six start. Um, you know, the thing about that was that Van Gundy refused to adapt. Other other teams really caught on what the Pistons were doing on offense. And, of course, Van Gundy, who just called uh, every play, every half-court set from just a short list of plays that had absolutely, whether unwillingness or or inability to adapt. Yeah. And, and the season started going downhill really after that, uh, after that, that strong start, you know, for, for that reason, a variety of other reasons, I think that can be largely weighed at the feet of his coaching uh, until Reggie Jackson got injured. Uh, at that point, uh, the season was going to become a great deal more difficult, but Van Gundy was still, te- you know, his terrible coaching was not helping things. In any case, in those last two seasons, I think he proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is not fit to coach in the modern NBA, and that the you know that the evolution of the NBA absolutely magnified his flaws and, and left him behind as an effective coach. So it was completely and utterly bizarre to see the Pelicans hire him to both try to win games and develop young players and run herd on a young locker room. Uh, he is not qualified to do either of those things. So what would have happened? I think we would have been subjected to. I mean, the Pistons went forty-one and forty-one in a week, you know, in a week Eastern Conference. Lost, lost two thirds as things actually happened. Uh, lost, I think, two thirds of their games against teams that were 500 or better, and and just limped into the playoffs, uh, and then got obliterated by the Ducks in like the, the the worst first round pounding in the history, the modern history of the NBA, or history of the modern NBA rather, or in modern NBA history. Okay, uh, I'm going to move on from that. Uh, now, if Van Gundy had been there, I think. Well, me for me personally, it would have been even more frustrating. But I, I think that just would have been like another season in which the Pistons had won, you know, low thirties games, and uh, yeah, I, I think that it it would have been even worse than than what was already a very bad season in which the Pistons were basically toiling in futility uh, for the sake of what pretty much nothing. They had no hope of meaningful success. So if he'd stayed on, I mean, that would have been. If I remember correctly, yeah, he signed a five-year contract. That would have been the last season of his contract. And he would have been fired at the end of that. And say that with a very high degree of certainty. Question the second. Uh, in your personal opinion, what's the timeline of events slash wants that need to occur within the next or through next season to ensure that we end up on the right track to actual improvement? What needs to be addressed? Ideal coaching candidates, et cetera, if that's not too broad of a question. So uh, I'll start with ideal coaching candidates. So, I mean, there are some guys in the league you can look at, like Quinn Snyder, for example, uh, who I believe is currently unemployed. Kenny Atkinson, who uh, is an assistant for the Warriors. And, and 
I, I really haven't looked at the list yet. Uh, here's the thing that makes it a little bit difficult for me to uh, talk about, you know, which coach the best entire is that there are always newcomers of the league. There are a ton of retreads. Like, for example, you know, Frank Vogel got a job at the, the Lakers, another job at the Lakers, and, uh, you know, won a championship. Of course, the personnel really helped. Uh, Steve Clifford, I believe, is back coaching the Hornets. And there, there are a lot of retreads out there. Uh, but there are also new guys you bring into the league, and, and they turn out to be very successful. And uh, I don't know nearly enough about the coaches in the NCAA and, and the coaches you know, from elsewhere in the world uh, to say you know, definitively who should the best and tire. Like if, if Dwayne Casey gets fired, that's something I'll do research on. Or if Dwayne Casey is not the coach next season, I'm quite certain the story that will be given is that there was a mutual agreement that he was going to move to a front office role. So in terms of through next season, okay, like one thing is development. I mean, the Pistons, this is non-negotiable. The Pistons need to see development from Cade. He needs to become that franchise player, Ivy. And again, I think Ivy's a guy who's going to develop a little bit slowly. And and we hope we get to where we want him to see. You know, he's this very dynamic offensive player who, you know, is kind of a nightmare in terms of his ability to slash athletically to the rim. But you you really need Cade to develop to take steps toward developing into the player that we think he that we think he can be. We need uh, to see development from Ivy. Uh, we need to see you know development from Durham would be great. So there's Bagley. I, I don't think Bagley's likely to amount for much. But you need basically you you put young talent with the potential on the team, and, and you need to see the development from that talent. I mean that is that is the first and most non negotiable thing. Um, beyond that. Well, it'd be nice to see better defense. I mean, the Pistons need to. I mean, we'll see who the Pistons get in the draft, but but putting some some better defensive power on the team will be will be very 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 nice. You hope that Duran again. This goes back to development. You hope that Duran will continue to develop. I don't think that the at the Stewart Duran front court is the front court of the future. And and just to just to state this, they have not been good on defense, like not at all. You know, the two of them they they play very physically. And, you know, they're an inspiring duo in, in terms of just how hard they compete out there, but they've been pretty bad. Part of that is due to the fact that Duran is still pretty raw on defense. And, and part of it is due to Isaiah Stewart transitioning to defending, you know, a lot more on the perimeter and, and outside of his comfort zone, I believe, in, in some place that I don't think he's really ideally suited to defend. So need to add some defense there. And I feel like I'm rendering this down to a just a, a very, very, very basic answer, which is that you need a defense that's good enough to compete with with good offenses. So the Pistons either need you know, improvement development from the young players on the team or somebody in the draft, or they need to like add a strong defensive like 3 and D wing, and those are expensive and they don't grow on trees. And they need guys, you know, they need proper spacing on offense. You know, you got to be able to shoot. You need guys, you know, at least a couple of star scorers, ideally, you know, like a superstar scorer. My, my formula is always like two superstar scorers or the superstar and two stars. You know, like the Lakers, you know, back in 2020 with with AD and LeBron, or the you know the Bucks in in 2021 with with you know with Giannis as your superstar and Chris Middleton and, and Drew Holiday, and that was able to overcome you know even Mike Budenholzer being like a pretty poor offensive coach for them in the playoffs, and then the Warriors are the Warriors. So, you know, in terms of winning last year, um, the the Warriors kind of defy classification um, just in terms of the the talent they have on the team, the mix of talent they have on the team plus Steve Kerr. Uh, really everything came together for the Warriors, you know, from, from 2015, 2014, 2015 onward, uh, getting Durant on the team. That was an abomination. The team should never have been allowed to exist, but that certainly helped things for them also. But then they won again. Uh, you know, um, I think their last championship was in 2018. And, you know, they won again four years later uh, with almost, a, you know, an almost identical core, just the, the three core players plus Andrew Wiggins and all three of their core players were four years older. I mean, it's just that they just have done remarkable things in Golden State. 
So, yeah, I'm just putting together basically the list of qualifications. Yeah, you got to be able to play defense in the playoffs. And anybody who's like a horrible defensive liability in the playoffs will be targeted. Um, so, you know, you can have like, you know, a weak defender, for example. Um, but, you, you know, you you got to have a decent defense to win in the playoffs as far as, you know, excuse me, win a championship. Is I, I, I do constantly talk about how offense is more important than defense in today's NBA. And that's true. I mean, you can you can get by with a really good offense and a, and a pretty poor defense. Uh, whereas the opposite is is not accurate in the regular season. Once you get to the postseason, you have to have a solid defense at the very least. Of course, your offense still needs to be strong. So yeah, on offense, got to have proper spacing, got to have elite creators. And then a coach, you have to have a guy who maximizes what your team can offer. Um, but in getting to this point in this question, I've basically just gotten extremely theoretical. So as, as far as the Pistons go, let's see. So again, we need development. Uh, I, I would say that if the Pistons get like one of the the marquee picks, like if you get Victor in this draft and if he remains healthy, then you are a giant, giant step toward being a contender. You know, but, you know, if, if Victor is, you know, even 80% of the player that people hope he will be. Uh, otherwise, hopefully, you know, you get another really core piece on offense in this draft or you go out, you know, whenever it is, you know, it's it's really hard, even if you're not Detroit, to, to grab marquee free agents, uh, to grab marquee scores, excuse me, star scores and free agency. Uh, even if simply because they very rarely hit free agency anymore. This is the, uh, and, you know, this was, I think, Zach Lowe who put it well. Uh, this was on a podcast I listened to. I occasionally listen to the Lowe Post. Zach Lowe, I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I think is is the best in the business as far as uh, analysis goes on the national level. Uh, so it was an episode with he and I believe Bobby Marks, who's uh, probably the, the preeminent cap guy, the salary cap guy, and they were discussing it, that it is the era of extensions. Players will just take big extensions from their team with the knowledge that if they want out, they can just say, trade me, you know? So, you know, that, 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 and that it is a big reason why you, it is much, much, much less common to see star free agents hit free, excuse me, star players, star scorers hit free agency. So then you have the additional wrinkle that, the, that Detroit is, you know, the Pistons do not play in Los Angeles or New York uh, or Miami. So if the Pistons really want to add somebody big, then you're looking at a trade. Uh, the Pistons cannot trade any first round picks at the moment. Uh, because of the Stepien rule, you know, eventually that pick will convey uh, to, unless the Pistons get it back somehow via trade, uh, eventually that pick will convey uh, to the Knicks or whoever owns it at that point. Uh, it's heavily protected. The Pistons become uh, a playoff team. Yeah, the protections basically gradually decrease uh, from, I believe it's 1 to 16 this year and next year. I could just go look this up, but yeah, the, the protections will gradually decrease. But at the moment, basically, the Pistons don't own a pick. They don't own their pick until uh, 2027, I believe, or 2020. Yeah, so it's the protections, basically, you, you can't trade a pick that is not at least seven years. I mean, seven years is the maximum pick you can trade in the future. So when the Pistons made that deal at the at the 2020 draft, they it was protected until 2027. If it has not conveyed it by then, it uh, I believe it converts into two second round picks. But basically, the upshot of this is that the Pistons do not control their pick until 2028. And so they and they're, they're not at this point. They could trade a 2029 draft pick because basically the Stepien rule says you cannot be without a first round draft pick in two consecutive drafts. It doesn't have to be your pick, but uh, you yeah you just you can't be without a second round pick in two future drafts and. You can get around this by trading at the draft, actually. So the Pistons could trade a pick at the draft, provided that the pick belongs to them. How it works right now is that the team, which is now the Knicks, basically owns the Pistons pick uh, until 
the Pistons go into the lottery and it's definitively demonstrated that the pick is going to fall within the protected range. Uh, however, you can get around that um, in terms of trading future picks because so what you do is you draft for a team and then you trade that draft afterward and, and the clock gets reset immediately when you draft that player. Now that's considered a past draft and not a future draft. But whatever the case, the Pistons at this point don't have first round picks to trade and, and they won't until something changes. So that's going to make it harder hard to, tra- to trade for a superstar player. So basically, you look in the draft, hope, hopefully you get another star player there, uh, or you make a trade, and then you get a better coach. And I've gone into, into massive theory here, but that's the only way I know how to answer this question. Uh, said, uh, and the question at the end is if it's not, uh, that's not too broad of a question. It's a pretty broad question. There are a lot of moving parts. Uh, but I you know, hope that was a uh, satisfactory answer to your question. Now a cool quote from our sponsor. Four NFL teams, two conference championship games, and only a few more shots to win big on the playoffs of DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner in the NFL. Counting down to Super Bowl 57, new customers can bet just $5 and get 200 free bets instantly. Now a new customer, you can feel the conference championship thrills with stepped-up same-game parlays. Take a shot at an even bigger NFL payout and boost your winnings with each leg you add up to 100%. For example, the 49ers-Eagles game should be particularly exciting. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code TBPN. New customers can bet $5 in the conference championships and get 200 in free bets instantly. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code TBPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Question number three. Who are some good middle-level wing defenders the Pistons could identify this summer or at the deadline? And is Dorian Finney-Smith one of them? Uh, I would be surprised to see the Pistons make a win now move at the deadline. Uh, it's interesting you bring up, bring up DFS, so uh, DFS, Dorian Finney-Smith. Though I think DFS is also a, uh, a fantasy basketball term. Uh, whatever the case. So uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, let's first talk about the situation that the Mavericks find themselves in, which is that they have an absolutely transcendent player in Luka Doncic. I mean, Luka is so good. He's incredible, uh, on offense anyway. Uh, so they've got him. Uh, the Porzingis trade fell through. I mean, that was, I think, an absolutely the right decision to make to take that risk. Unfortunately, Porzingis couldn't stay healthy. And uh, he was never really too happy, apparently, playing behind Luka, though he, he definitely has, has said nothing bad about Dallas since being traded. Now, like the Mavericks, they, they traded Porzingis uh, to the Wizards for uh, basically the justification behind this trade. Like Porzingis wasn't going to work out for them. And so they wanted to separate his huge contract out into some smaller contracts that'd be more easily traded. So uh, the two main pieces they got out of that, I can't remember if there were more actually, but the, the pieces that I remember, the piece, the, the major pieces there were uh, uh, Davis Bertans, who sucks. And was on a bad contract from the Wizards. And Spencer Dinwiddie, who's, who's actually been pretty decent at, for the Mavericks. But nonetheless, it's a team with an amazing player that is cap-locked and doesn't really have any obvious routes to get better. And they lost Brunson in the offseason. That hurt. Because Brunson, even though I don't think he was the greatest fit next to Luka, was still you know, a pretty darn good contributor for them last year. And they lost him, and they lost him for nothing, you know, which happens. You know, Brunson, I mean, they, they could have extended him at a very, very affordable price for what, what would have been an absolute bargain contract, like arguably the best contract in the league if, you know, if he had gone on to even maintain last season's production, uh, but they didn't, and he plays in New York now. So Dorian Finney-Smith is he's a strong defensive player, and for the most part, he's also a good three-point shooter. Like in, in the last three, three seasons before this, uh, he shot uh, close, to, uh, close to 40% in two of them. And uh, about 37, 38% the season before that. Uh, he's in the midst of a very difficult season. Uh, it certainly has worsened to becoming a starter. He's only shooting about 34.5% from three. And he's at just around 40% from the field. So, and yeah, I'm, I'm reading all of this off a of stat sheet. I, I don't have these stats committed to memory. So 
Here's the thing, though, with the Mavericks is that, the, I mean, they're not going to make a trade that makes them worse. They're only going to make a trade that makes them better. Like at this point, would you swap Dorian Finney-Smith for, and, and Finney-Smith, it should be noted, based on his production the last three seasons, is on an absolute bargain contract. Like it is is a contract that I believe averages like $14 million a year. I mean, and that includes his player option. That is that is an absolute bargain contract for a player like Dorian Finney-Smith, is a strong 3 and D player. So uh, would they make that swap? I think that they would probably, yeah, that, that's a tough one. Because like assuming that you're starting Christian Wood or playing Christian Wood big minutes, you've got Luka in there. Spencer Dinwiddie is no stalwart on defense. Not there's Luka. I mean, Luka is a below average defender. Christian Wood is not a good defender. Um, Tim Hardaway Jr. is nothing special. Uh, and then Boyan, of course, is butter on defense. He's awful. Uh, you've got Jason Kidd in there, who is uh, really had to surprise me as the coach of the Mavericks in terms of his ability to uh, not be the coach that he was in Milwaukee, where he was awful. Uh, and, and has the Mavericks uh, playing you know, pretty strong defense, um, but at least he did last season. Uh, and yeah, I'm looking at it now again. He has this season. Um, basically, by by replacing DFS with with Boyan, you're you're adding a weapon on offense, a guy who would be the second best scorer, you know, next to Luca, and you're giving yourself a massive downgrade on defense. So that's a tough one. Uh, and, and another thing from the Pistons end, however, I mean, Dorian Finney-Smith is going to be 30 at the end of the season. So I just don't see it happening at the point where, you know, you hope that the Pistons are going to be competing next year or excuse me, the year after next. And then once you get to the point where you kind of hope that like, like three seasons from now, you hope, okay, the Pistons will be a contender. Dorian Finney-Smith is going to be close to 33 years old, uh, you know, basically about 32 and a half when the season begins. So I, I don't see it, even if the Mavericks are interested. I don't think the Pistons would be. I think the Pistons will be looking for kind of younger players on uh, either their rookie deals or, or guys whom they feel that they would be able to extend uh, or and or draft picks. And that that's actually what they've said they want. Uh, or what, what has come out about Boyan is that, uh, you know, a good young player in a first, or maybe the ask is lowered to just an unprotected first. So the Pistons could, who knows, maybe that's a conceivable trade. I don't know if the Mavericks would be interested. And I'd say the Pistons would definitely not be interested. As far as other players you might look at by trade, I mean, obviously, like the, the dream scenario is that the Suns go billy up and, and you manage to trade for, for Mikel Bridges. Uh, the possibility that the Suns will decide to just blow it up, I'd say maybe one in 10,000. So that's why I call it the dream scenario. I'd say it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unlikely to happen. Uh, now, dream scenarios aside, now uh, Atlanta is struggling. The real question's over there. Uh, you know, do you, like just DeAndre Hunter is a name that comes to mind. Are they likely to make a trade this season? No, I, I wouldn't say that. You know, maybe in the offseason, of course, that's contingent upon the Pistons actually having something to offer them. Uh, Hunter's had a strong season. Uh, it's likelihood of staying healthy. Who knows? But he has done so this year. Um, but, you know, yeah, if the Hawks really feel like they, they need to shake things up, then maybe they look to trade him again. What are the Pistons going to offer? You, know, you can offer Boyan. Yeah, I'm sure he's under contract two more years. Uh, it is That's kind of more of a lateral move for the Suns, uh, excuse me, for the Hawks. Uh, arguably makes them worse because if Hunter who's scoring pretty well right now and, and is a good defender. You replace him with Boyan, who's maybe going to score a little bit more and is a much, much, much worse defender, and you put him next to Trey Young. Yeah, that's that's not happening. I mean, that's, that's just the recipe for, for big problems to happen. <laughs> Young is a horrible defender. Horrible, and so is Boyan. You want two horrible defenders in the starting lineup, I would say no. Uh, for a team that's that's already below average defense. But it just keeps coming to mind with the Pistons. Again, what are the Pistons going to offer a, a team that's already established for a player that's that's going to, that that team is really thinking is going to make them a better team going forward, like Boyan and Burks are like the two primary trade assets right now. I don't see the Pistons trading Sadiq Bay this season. Um, 
and then then you have the the real the principles as far as the youth goes and that's that's Duran, that's Ivy, that's Cade, and I don't think any of them are going anywhere. I think it's very, very unlikely in any case. You know, like who knows, maybe you see like if the Pistons were to make an absolute blockbuster for like a really, really good player, you might see one of them traded, but um, you might see one of Ivy or or Duran traded, but it's one of these things where these players are more valuable to the Pistons than they would be to other teams. Uh, you know, most likely because um, you know, Ivy and Duran, you know, nobody knows what they're going to be. And well, I guess that that distinction becomes lesser when you're looking at a team that's just blowing it up and it's probably gonna be tanking. Uh whatever the case. So uh would not think of anybody on like an actual good team as a likely trade target, uh, as a likely trade partner for the Pistons. I would not think of any of those teams as likely trade partners for the Pistons. Just again, the Pistons have set to have something to offer them. Uh, Boyan is, you know, getting older. He has his big issues on defense. Burks is like a, is like a good bench player. These are not guys with like a high degree of value that, that a team is going to trade away a good three and D wing for three and D wings do not grow on trees. I said that already. Sorry. Three and D wings are very, very valuable and, and highly valued. Um, I mean, down the trade list, there's actually, I would say, a, a decent degree of possibility that the Bulls would consider blowing it up this summer. Uh, I mean, that that team is really, in my opinion, was that that bringing in DeRozan and, and Lonzo, the poor Lonzo. I mean, that that guy is he's a good NBA player, and he's got a, a bad physical problem there. But even if everybody had stayed healthy, I think that would have been a second-round team, you know, tops. Uh, you know, DeRozan's getting older, Levine has his issues with injury. Just I, I think the ceiling of the team is not high. And it, it doesn't help, of course, that you've got what I consider as a bad coach in Billy Donovan, who somehow got an extension, whatever the case. They're not going to blow it up this season because they don't own their pick. Um, but it's possible that they could do so in the offseason. And in that case, maybe you look at Alex Caruso, who is, is definitely a very, very solid defender uh, who can shoot threes. He's not really a scorer, but he's a guy that the Pistons, whom the Pistons could look at. And again, you got to have things to trade at the Bulls. And I don't think the Pistons are really going to be in much of a, a mood to... Trade any of their young players. I mean, if it's a team that's blowing it up, then you know they're going to want that kind of player. Uh, who knows if Isaac, if Isaac Okoro drops out of the out of the rotation really in, in Cleveland? Um, I don't know. It just comes down to trades, and uh, you know what? It comes down, excuse me, in trades. The same thing, uh, in my opinion, that you uh, you know you got to give up something of value in exchange, and and the Pistons don't really have much of that. You know, who knows? Maybe the, the Cavaliers are like, oh, we we just you know we're looking for more scoring. And Okor is a small member, you know, very, very relatively unimportant member of the rotation. And sure, we'll take on Boyan. You know, it's a possibility. Who knows? Again, though, Okor, you're taking a risk because up to this point, he has been a very, very unreliable three-point shooter. Strong defender, extremely athletic, but it was always going to be the three-point shooting that was going to be the swing skill, and he has proven nothing yet. Uh, And then, hey, here's a fun one. Stanley Johnson, (laughs) who is... uh, it was playing for the Jazz right now and is is shooting well from three on uh, on very low volume. And uh, Stanley came out and said about his time in Detroit that you know he'd love to come back to Detroit. That that he was having a really tough time when he was with the Pistons. His mother died, I believe, shortly after the draft, and I think he pretty much just just said he was never able to get it together. Uh, do I think that Stanley's like an actual option that the Pistons should look into? I mean, maybe if it's like extremely cheap or basically nothing. He was he was this weird thing in Detroit because he has all the tools to be a strong defender and he was at times and then there were other times at which he was absolutely not really horrible. Like the the third quarter of that final season he played with the Pistons before he was traded, he was absolutely comically bad on defense and I don't really know why. Of course, on offense he was always one of the worst players in the league too. But hey, if the guy can shoot threes and the Pistons can get him for nothing, uh, and you know extend him on a on, on a really uh, excuse me, Stanley's not playing for the Jazz, he's playing for the Spurs. My bad. He got he got traded the Jazz in the in the THT trade. Uh, that brought Beverly 
to the Lakers and then he got waived and, and signed by the Spurs. And it's funny that he's on the Spurs because back when the Pistons were, you know, there was the talk that he could be traded like uh, in, in his second and third seasons. Uh, the Spurs were always listed a team that was interested that was interested a team that could really that was great at rehabilitating players uh, you know whose careers have really taken a downturn uh, but you know hey yeah if the Spurs want to want to trade him away for basically nothing there's uh, there, there's an option is he like a valuable long-term option though he's only 26 I would say uh, no not unless he's really really learned to shoot the ball uh, and you know obviously 48.4 percent on one and a half attempts per game for a really bad shooter in the past I mean you know, Jerry's out there in terms of if he can actually become a shooter. But if he can become a shooter, I'd say he's probably got a career in the NBA ahead of him. Uh, now, if we, when we get to free agency where things become a lot more realistic, uh, the name at the top of the list, obviously, is Jeremy Grant, which is funny for obvious reasons. Uh, will the Blazers let him go? Not unless they decide to blow it up, which I think is unlikely. I mean, they have had definitely a rough season so far. Uh, they could conceivably miss the playoffs, though being in the East, uh, excuse me, being in the West, which is now the weak conference, uh, means that, I mean, at, at 22 and 25, uh, they are two games out of the eighth seed, and they are you know the two excuse me two wins, and they are three wins out of the fifth seed, and five wins out of the third seed. So are they ever going to blow it up? Especially because Willard really has no desire, and uh, apparently no desire whatsoever to play for another team. And with Anthony Simons really coming in and and uh, and being a, a very good player, uh, I would say probably not. And also the Blazers somehow not being an absolutely horrible defense, despite playing Nurkic and, and playing like an absolutely awful defensive backcourt. So they'd be insane to not keep him uh, for the Pistons purposes. I mean, he's going to be 29 this summer and players, uh, it seems like an arbitrary cutoff, but, uh, but players often really start to decline in, in their thirties, but early thirties is still, you know, still a decent time. It did, you know, when we talk about the Pistons timeline, like it would have, it would have been a little bit of a bitter pill if the Pistons had just extended him because he really served no purpose on the team and a team that was going to continue to really be focused on youth. Uh, of course, the way he was used by Dwayne Casey was not helpful. He's not being used that way by Chance, by Chauncey Billups. Dwayne Casey loves his veterans. He loves his veteran go-to scorers. And it's like, okay, take the ball and please score. And Grant apparently started playing differently after the All-Star break. I, I believe it was the the end-of-season press conference where Weaver said, you know, I had a talk with, with Jeremy Grant about just playing more efficiently. And Grant played somewhat differently after that. Uh, but he's, he's having a very strong season as a number three guy in, in Portland. Uh, he's being utilized more judiciously, kind of in keeping with what his strengths are. He's shooting very well from three, and he is strong on defense. Now, would the Pistons want to pay a lot of money for a Jeremy Grant? Mm, who knows? It's kind of weird to say this, but the Pistons might have some trouble actually using this cap space that they're coming up with. They don't need to use it, but it's like uh, this summer you have it, um, and then you have to start thinking about extensions. And who knows? Uh, who knows what, what the Pistons will do as far as extensions? Like Killian and uh, and, and, and Sadiq Bay and Isaiah Stewart are all eligible for extensions in the offseason. You know, who knows how big those will be? Uh, but for now, they don't cut into the cap space, of course, because they're not free agents, so no cap holds. Uh, the next season, you think about re-signing them. Uh, you've got uh, kind of, well, let's see, Cade will be extension eligible next summer. And unless something goes drastically wrong, the Pistons will sign him to that extension. Um, though, again, you can just use your cap space in that situation and then sign him to the extension because you got full bird rights on him. So the, the Pistons still could have some cap space or a lot of cap space going into next summer, or the summer after next, rather. They will have the cap holds for Stewart and Killian and uh, in Bay on the books. Uh, those aren't huge. Um, but again, free agency is, is kind of like a tough, it's, it's, it's tough to come by elite talent in free agency. You can have an enormous amount of cap space and not really have much to do with it. So what you think about Grant this offseason? Yeah, who knows? Maybe, especially pending the outcome of the draft. Uh, will the Trailblazers let him go? They'd be kind of crazy to do so. Uh, he has been eligible for an extension for 
a couple of months now, uh, the the six-month moratorium in which they would really have been limited in what they, they would have been able to offer him, um, though this, there are still some limits, uh, has expired, I believe. Yeah, because that was at the draft. It was traded just before the draft, so six months, yeah, that, that, that expired in December. Uh, but I would imagine he has no interest in taking an extension right now. He wants to hit free agency to see what he can get. But that would be a big loss for them if they were to lose him. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, another guy, Josh Hart, in the same team. You know, I think decent defender, but not a good three-point shooter. And, and again, and this is something I meant to say at the beginning of this question. I imagine we're not talking about sacrificing like a lot of offense for, for a strong defensive player. These kind of like defensive specialists don't really exist in the NBA anymore. Like you look at Matisse Thibel, who's a very strong defender, but is an enormous liability on offense and therefore is of limited value. I mean, uh, if I were the Pistons, maybe you take him on as kind of like a re- reclamation project at a low salary and hope that he can more than shoot. But if you do so, you do so knowing that the odds are against it. Uh, Cam Reddish, uh, not a big fan of this, but I mean, solid defender. Then you hope he can get a shot together. He's also a bozo. That doesn't help things. Um, you could look into trading for him this season. Then you got to pay him in the offseason. Uh, how much would I pay Cam Reddish? I don't know. Again, the guy's not very smart and he's got issues on offense. I mean, he, he can't shoot the ball. It's really a pretty big issue. He's been very, very extremely inconsistent as a shooter. So you're taking that risk. Again, another reclamation project. You're taking on a guy who, you know, say, well, I hope you work out. Um, if you don't, uh, all right, well, that sucks. So I'm not exactly the kind of guy we're talking about. Uh, Grant Williams, definitely a rugged defender, can shoot threes. Uh, he would be an option. Uh, not the most athletic for a team that's already uh, kind of not the most athletic, but you know, maybe that's fine at this point. He'll be pricey. And the Celtics, well, I mean, the Celtics are going to be paying a, a heap of tax next season, um, like a real heap of tax. But um, So it's possible that he gets let go in the offseason. Um, but it's kind of a somewhat limited player in terms of what he offers on offense. Pretty much shoots, shoots pretty much just shoots threes. Um, but I'd say he's probably, well, I, I, he does more than that. He's just not really all that great at it. Um, though he's, he's a strong finisher under the basket. He just has very limited, limited agency. And, and also just, I mean, if you're looking for a long-term bench player, who's, uh, you know, who can definitely play in the postseason, who is a strong defender and, you know, and a good three-point shooter, then, then Grant Williams is somebody you can think about. If you're looking for the starting lineup, then, uh, then not, though I, I think um not sure actually about this question. You know, I could just ask you, but um I'm right in the middle of this answer. <laughs> but yeah, for a bench player, uh, that's solid, but you're going to be paying quite a bit of money for him. And uh, that brings me to uh, the final name on the list, and uh, that is Bruce Brown. So Bruce Brown has, you know, I always said that, you know, if Bruce could learn to shoot, then he, he could be certainly a very valuable rotation player in the NBA. Uh, Bruce is shooting 40% this season on you know, about three and a half threes per game. Uh, he is definitely a, a, a multi-positional defender, uh, you know, a guy who can also, you know, d- you know, is a decent passer. He's just a super hard worker. Like uh, I always liked Bruce. I didn't like that he was starting for the Pistons back in, in 2018, 2019, because that's two non-shooters in the floor. And uh, he, just, he just made life more difficult than everybody else. He has learned to shoot, which I didn't think would happen. And uh, there's one thing I will say about Bruce, who's averaging 11 points this season, and it's like good for him. It is extremely, extremely, extraordinarily helpful for him to be playing next to Jokic. Uh, Bruce Brown is a very active off-ball player. Uh, he'll get open, whether it's on cuts or at the three-point line. And having like the, the best interior passer of all time feeding you. I mean, Jokic, I will never be, get bored of talking about Jokic. And uh, I'll say this once again. I mean, the guy is uh, like... It does things as a passer that shouldn't be possible. That just genuinely should not be possible. 
So you take him out of that situation, but you got no Jokic. I mean, you also have Jamal Murray on that team. I mean, Jokic just makes is enough to make anybody any offense a strong offense. I mean, he is a meta bending player, absolutely defensive bending player. You've got Jamal Murray, uh, who who's also having a strong season. Um, you have you even have KCP in a starting lineup. KCP is like the best three point shooter in the league this season, forty seven percent and four and a half. I mean, or one of the best anyway. Alec Burks is up there, but KCP is, is demanding a lot of attention on the perimeter. Aaron Gordon is shooting well, and and another player who's just perfect next to uh, next to Jokic in in terms of just highly athletic, moves very well off the ball. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. again shooting forty percent from three. Uh, the, the Nuggets are are just a. I mean, they're number one in the Western Conference right now. That's a, that's a very very good team. And all this is to say that Bruce Brown has a lot of distractions. I mean, there are a lot of players who are being watched more than he is. I mean, even Bones Highland is. I wouldn't say he's been efficient, and I mean he's been absolute crap from two, but. Uh, even from three, he's been very strong. So the, there are a lot of distractions out there. I mean, if you're if you're playing against Denver, first and foremost, you have to worry worry about Jokic, and there's very little you can do against Jokic because, uh, like, if you leave him alone, uh, then he's likely to just score on you one on one. And if you double team him, uh, he's going to throw the ball through like a wormhole, uh, and it's just going to magically appear, and or even triple team him. You can throw four guys at him, and the ball is just magically going to appear right, perfectly in the shooting pocket of a guy. I don't know, like 30, you know, basically on the other side of the court. It's uh, it, it's absolutely uncanny. So you got to worry about Jokic first and foremost. Murray is having a good season, averaging 19 points and very good efficiency. You know, and he's and he's a playmaker as well. You have to worry about him off the drive. Excuse me, not very good efficiency. Murray's been solid, put it that way, 56% true shooting. And uh, you have to worry about Porter, who can shoot over basically anybody um, because he's like nearly seven feet and, uh, and his release is pretty high. You got to worry about KCP, who can run around screens and shoot. You got to worry about Gordon, who's uh, you know who's who's very very strong, and uh, is a decent three point shooter, and just around the basket if he gets a mismatch, he stands a very good chance of scoring over you. Uh, and and Michael Malone's a decent offensive coach. So you got to worry about all these guys, and then you have Bruce Brown, who when he's on the floor is almost invariably going to be the the bottom priority uh, for or, you know like the the fourth most important guy at, at, at the very most, and this just makes life enormously easier on him because he doesn't really need to do much. So if you bring him onto the team, are you going to like put him in as your starting small forward? As I would say, no. If you just want kind of like a guy who can provide you a decent amount off the bench, uh, then uh, then cool. He's not a terrible option, um, but he's just in an awesome situation for him right now. Just like he was in in a very good situation with the Nets, where you just you put him next to multiple elite creators, and suddenly his inability to really do very much, though. Again, he's he's actually shooting well now, and that's on low volume, but he's definitely shooting well it becomes much less of an issue. So I'd say he's a very context-dependent player, and he's in the perfect situation for him right now. Would you, would you, would you pay him for the Pistons? Uh, I don't think it's worthwhile. So that is my very long-winded answer to that question, and I'll, I'll just kind of cap it off by, you know, I will put it, uh, I could have, I guess, summarized it much more effectively by just saying that three and strong 3 and D guys are very, very valuable. It's tough to even find them in free agency, and where the Pistons are right now with that, just in terms of trades, I don't think the assets that they're willing to part with, which is basically like, you know, Boyan and Alec Burks, or, or you know, maybe you throw Sadiq Bey in there for like a really good situation, are, are likely to, um, by really good situation, again, I think the Pistons would, you know, much rather just Sadiq uh, find his way back to where he was last season and like continue to develop. And that, that, that's the ideal scenario there. Um, and he's probably not quite that valuable to another team unless they're rebuilding and then they don't really have these kind of guys to throw at you. So, yeah, whether it's free agency, or in the uh, or by trade, yeah, I don't really see it for the Pistons right now. 
And but fortunately, you don't need like really strong guys. Like with the Pistons, would benefit really from just having kind of solid defenders, and there are many, many more of them out there. Uh, next question: uh, Have you gotten a chance to do any early analysis in the prospects in the upcoming draft? If so, who do you like most at this juncture? I, to be honest, have done no research at all yet. I typically pick up my draft research in well, last season I did it. I did it a little bit earlier, but my plan this season was to pick it up in February or March. And uh, that's that's when I plan to get started. I don't know, probably mid-February. And next one. Uh, if someone were to ask today, who in this roster could you see starting on a team that won their first playoff series? Now, this is a question that I may have answered differently last uh, last season. I may have said that you see Sadiq Bey starting on that team. Uh, Bey is just having a completely baffling season uh, in which he's been absolutely just dreadful on defense, uh, You know, the, even when he's not playing next to Boyan. And... Like, just awful. I mean, even if you look at his most basic defensive stats, like like go on to stats on NBA.com and look at his, his defensive dash, and that's nothing but just kind of one-on-one stats and, and how it, comp- how it compares to to how those players typically you know, typically fare in those situations. And, of course, that's that's not going to give you, like, the full picture for anybody. Um, it's not, uh, you know, nothing's going to give the full picture on defense for, for anybody unless you're actually watching the player because there, there are all sorts of things just in terms of how a player operates and how it, in the, in the context of his team that no defensive metric can tell you, uh, my opinion, if anybody, you know, if, if somebody were to say, Mike, what do you think? What, which defensive metric should I look at? What's going to tell me how good a player is on defense? I would say none of them because there's so much on defense that, that no metric at all can measure. It's much easier on offense though. though even that, even offensive metrics and any of them can't tell you if a player is, is more than his stats or less than his stats. Like you look at Al Horford with, with the Celtics back in like 2017, 2018, uh, I think I'm getting to your rights, and I think he averaged like 14 points. Uh, but he's so much more than his stats because he could basically score from anywhere, and uh, and he's an excellent passer and just a super IQ, high IQ guy. And then you look at I don't know, this just comes up from yesterday. Like Rui, Rui Hachimura, you know, scores on decent efficiency. Um, you know, last season, for example, was a decent three point shooter. But it's like a guy who, uh, you know, who rarely gets to the paint. He uh, loves mid range. He's not very reliable at it. He's a horrible black hole on the way to the basket. He doesn't pass it. Doesn't really operate very much within the flow of the offense. He's a bad passer. Some guys are going to be there. Some guys are going to be. He's, he's a less than a stats player. Some guys are going to be equal to their stats, roughly. Some guys are going to be much more than their stats. Some guys are going to be much less than their stats. But on defense, I mean, those metrics are super unreliable. But nonetheless, I mean, for this, it, it's a. Uh, when it comes to Bay, I think it's it's a decent comparison when you look between his rookie season, last season, and this season. And he is appallingly worse this season, <laughs> you know, by that simple metric. So if you'd asked last season, I would have said Bay, like uh, like that I, I didn't necessarily have much confidence that he would grow into that third best guy in a championship team role. Uh, but if he could just be that fourth best guy in a championship team uh, caliber player, I mean, that'd be a huge win. And I would have said Sadiq. Um, but this season has been tumultuous for him, to say the least. Uh, Ivy remains kind of a wild card. I think Ivy has is very high offensive potential, um, and, and I'm confident that he will develop, um, but not so confident that I would say like in a couple years. Okay, we're talking about winning a playoff series. Okay, so uh, still Bay. I, I, I kind of got caught on championship. So uh, Bay, is, I would still call hazy, and and Isaiah Stewart. Like you still got to be a fairly good team to win a playoff series. Um, your, your chances of winning a playoff series are higher if you're higher in the standings, of course, because uh, you're playing against against worse teams because of seeding. Uh, generally speaking, anyway, sometimes a team with a lower seed just had a lot of injuries and they come in strong. But, uh, you know, Stewart, I just don't see him starting at power forward, like in a good team that's going to win a playoff series. I don't see him starting at center either uh, just because of his, his physical deficiencies. Uh, Bay is completely hazy at this point. 
Uh, is Boyan even going to be here when the Pistons are in position uh, to win a playoff series? I'd say probably not. Uh, Kate, I would say yes. Kate, I feel very strongly about. Uh, Ivy, uh, Ivy, I'm going to go with yes also, because I think you give Ivy time, he becomes a better shooter. He becomes more refined in terms of attacking the basket. Uh, he becomes like good enough in terms of not attacking into double teams and just losing the ball or taking a bad shot and just making the making, you know, being like okay at making the right pass at reading situations. And he's playing under a coach who doesn't just say, "Well, Jaden, take the ball and score in isolation or or score in you know, around a pick," while basically everybody else in the team just stand and everybody on the perimeter just stands still. I think that I think that Ivy will get there. Um, so if we're talking two seasons from now and the Pistons win a playoff series, then I would say yes. Uh, Duran, uh, I'd say kind of 67-33. Um, my opinion right now is that his struggles on defense and his difficulty at the uh, difficulty with layups, well, at least his struggles on defense, because uh, he's having some issues on defense just uh, in terms of making the right reads and positioning himself properly on contests and whatnot. But it's my opinion that that's, that's just him being raw and that he needs to develop. And if that's the case, then I'm confident he could start at center. Like he's just a guy who, because I think he has very high defensive potential in terms of, uh, you know, physically speaking, his ability to switch, his ability to uh, to relocate his length, his, uh, you know, his ability to defend the rim in terms, just as his, in terms of his biomechanics and just his uh, anthropometrics, I think is the word that they use it. I think that's the word that they use that word in terms of uh, stats, the draft combine, just basically his measurements. Uh, I think that if the defensive uh, defensive acumen is actually there, then you know he could be a top ten center, uh, and you know and his ability on on offense to to really dunk the ball a lot and, and vertically space the floor. He's got to work on those layups. So I give him a two thirds chance of being that player. And elsewhere on the list, mm, I mean I'd be thrilled if Isaiah Livers you know developed to that point. I think he's likely to be very long a long term bench player. And uh, then Rodney Magruder. Uh, insert joke about Rodney here. You know, Rodney seems like a cool dude. He's a trooper. His teammates love him. Obviously, he's uh, he's you know tenth man on a rebuilder. So yeah, that's my answer. K definitely. Um, Ivy, I give him like uh, like an eighty twenty shot, and then uh, Duran kind of like sixty seven thirty three. All right, folks. So that'll be it for this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed the format. Uh, hope you are all doing well. It's it's definitely been a rough season, and it is entirely possible that it's going to continue to be a rough season. Uh, but you know, we can hope that, you know, that better things are coming in future seasons. So, uh, as always want to thank you for listening. I will catch you in the next episode.